Everybody doing okay? Good? Okay, good. All right, good. This half of the room's a little bit better than this half. It's cool. It's cool. You're all here. Glad you're here. Um, okay, so we are in the book of Matthew. If you've never been to this church before, uh, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible, and this will be my third time to teach in the book of Matthew all the way through. And uh, in times past, it takes about six, eight months um, in line with what the last year has been. It's taken me 13 months to get through the book of Matthew, but we are on the very, very last chapter of the book of Matthew, which I think might be the shortest chapter of the book of Matthew, but arguably the most important, one of the most important chapters of the entire Bible. Without the 28th chapter of Matthew, you would have no Christianity. Uh, you would have no need for the rest of the Bible because everything that Jesus had said before chapter 28 would have been null and void because he would have been dead, right? But in chapter 28, we get the resurrection. Not only do we get the resurrection in chapter 28, we get what's called the Great Commission. That's gonna be what we're gonna talk about a little bit today, and I'll explain it. When I say explain it, we're gonna break down virtually every single line of what is called the Great Commission. Last week, though, if you weren't here, uh, very, very important, not because it's me, but go back and read that chapter, the second half of chapter 27 of Matthew. If you get a chance, watch that sermon. There, there's two things we talked about that I think are so important, especially, I think, for, for, for the age we live in. One is we have to be reminded that God loves us. How much does God love us? God loves us so much that he gave his only son for us, right? And that's, so when we talk about the cross, this sacrifice, man, I love you guys. I wouldn't, get, I, I wouldn't give one of my children for you. I wouldn't do it, right? I love my kids you know, more than I love you. God loved us so much that he gave his only son for us. That, that shows just how much he loves us. Not just how much he loves us, Maybe the most important thing we talked about last week is it shows us what we're worth. We said that the price of an object is set by how much one is willing to pay for it. So what does it say that God would give everything for us? See, we live in this culture right now that is dying to somehow feel value, valued, right? Noticed, recognized. That's why we have social media and that's why we, we live in such a me-driven society is we just want to be known. We want to feel valued. And God says, you, you are. You are invaluable to me. Maybe not to other people, maybe not to society or culture, but to me, your creator, you are invaluable. You're worth so much to me. So not only does God love us, like he made us in his image. Like we, we look like God. We, we're designed to think and act more like God. and He values us greatly, okay? So we talked about last week. This week, again, we're going to focus on this thing called the Great Commission. I'm going to give you homework again, Right? Um, and here's the reason why. Uh, Matthew was an accountant. He was a tax collector. And he wrote <laughs> like an accountant and a tax collector. Straight to the point, wanted to get to what he wanted to say. And he would omit things that did not go into his objective. That makes any sense. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's my favorite book of the Bible. But there are things in the other Gospels that give you a lot more of the picture of what happened after the resurrection of Jesus, the Great Commission, his ascending back into heaven. And you have to read John chapter 20, and you have to read Luke chapter 24. I'm gonna hit on a little bit of stuff, but we don't have time to hit on much because we're doing the, the book of Matthew, okay? So, you should have got notes, handouts when you came in. Has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, right? I think like all six-year-olds even have them nowadays. If you have a smartphone, you can download the Experience Community app um, 
Get our app, open up the sermon side of it. It's got all the notes, all the scripture. If you have a physical copy of the Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament, the very last chapter. It's very, very short. We'll run through it uh, pretty quick, and then we'll hang out at the end and just, just ask ourselves a couple of questions, right? Take a little inventory, as I call it, and we'll see how that goes, all right? Seriously, glad you guys are here. Um, I'm more convinced more than ever that we need church. We need church, right? So, <laughs> um, it's so important, so imperative. We need each other. We need the Lord, but God didn't design us to do things alone. We need each other too. So, glad you're here. Glad you're watching online if you couldn't be here. Let me pray, and we'll dive into this. Okay, Lord, we love you. Um, God, we just want to tell you thank you, Lord. Uh, we want to tell you thank you that, that we could come together today, Lord. If people couldn't make it, God, thank you for the technology that people can see us, Lord, and, and still be a part of the community, even from afar. Lord, we don't just pray for our church. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for churches that we work with all over the nation, churches that we work with outside of our country, God. Uh, Father, we pray for our government. We pray for our land. We pray for the people in this land, God. We pray Father, for the wonderful nonprofits, Lord, that we get to work with um, in Slavery Tennessee that we're working with this month, God, a absolutely phenomenal organization, God, that you just bless them and give them the resources they need to continue their very, very hard work. And uh, we love you and we thank you, God. And just be with us today as we study your word. Sharpen us, Lord. Bring us closer to you. And um, we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down to, to the best of our ability and see where God takes us. Let me set the scene real quick. So at the end of chapter 27, not only has Jesus been crucified, it says that the tomb that he was placed in, they put a big old stone, probably weighed a couple of tons, big old stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. They sealed it up, this is important, and then they placed Roman guards in front of it, okay? So not only is Jesus dead, there, no one's gonna get to his body, okay? Very, very secured. That's where we pick up. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by him that they became like dead men. That means they passed out. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead, and indeed he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Listen, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I find that humorous. They came up, took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Interesting. So it was the day after the Sabbath. The two Marys were now permitted because you weren't allowed to do virtually anything on the Sabbath, they were now permitted to go to the tomb and grieve for Jesus, okay? So when it says that an angel came down, there was an earthquake, the angel moved away the stone and was sitting there uh, on the rock, that happened before they got there. So by the time the two women got, got there, the Roman soldiers had, had come back to their senses, took off running out of fear, 
and there was an angel that looked like lightning sitting on a rock. Again, I'm a visual person. I also find humor in this. I don't know if angels kind of like cross their legs when they sit on rocks that they moved, but just the imagery of this is, is interesting to me. And they rolled up and they see an angel. And so here's what's interesting. The angel moved the stone. He didn't have to move the stone. Let me tell you why. Jesus wouldn't have been stopped by a stone. We actually know in John chapter 20, some other gotcha moments by Jesus, that Jesus would show up in these locked rooms, right? And he would catch people off guard. He would just kind of show up at random times after his resurrection. And so we know that a stone wouldn't have stopped Jesus. So why did the angel move the stone? The angel moved the stone for us. He wanted witnesses to come in. That's why he says, look, Jesus was right there. He's not there anymore. He has risen from the grave. He's not here. Okay, now this brings up a complicated issue, and I always want to be honest with you because that's, I hope that's the kind of church that we are. There are small differences in the four Gospels. So if you go and read the other Gospel accounts of this, there are minor differences. I don't think it discredits the Bible. I think there is harmony within the Gospels. I don't have an issue with it. But without some study and without some work, you can see, well, wait a second. One Mary said she saw one angel. Another Mary says she saw two angels. It's basically the equivalent. If, if, if Jason and I, my friend over here, if we were sitting out here and a car drives by and he goes, well, that car is aqua. And I'm like, no, that car was teal, right? Well, we may have seen a little bit more blue or a little bit more green, but the point is, is that a car drove by. You kind of have to have that mindset when you read the Gospels. They work in harmony. There, there's no discrepancies there, but there are minor differences in how they tell their stories. So the angel says he's not here. He's risen. So once the ladies were convinced that Jesus was resurrected, they were then instructed to go tell the other disciples that Jesus was going to meet them in Galilee. Here's what's interesting. We've seen this all throughout the history of men and women is the men had forgotten and the women had to go remind them of something that they already knew that they were supposed to do, right? So the men already knew because Jesus had told them, man, it's funny, Jesus was not ambiguous. Before he was arrested, Jesus pulled his disciples aside. He goes, guys, he said it multiple times. I'm gonna be arrested, murdered, I'm gonna raise from the dead, and I'll see you at this particular location after I'm resurrected, okay? Okay, and then everything happened and they completely forgot. So, Jesus, so, so this angel had to tell the women to go tell the guys that Jesus is gonna meet you at this point. Now, the reason this is so important to know this is it shows that Jesus had always been in control. He knew everything that was going to happen. This is so important. Listen, even he, Jesus knew that times were gonna get awful before they get awful. He also knew that there was a light at the end of that tunnel. And so we know that during the crucifixion and the resurrection and everything else that Jesus was in control, I think some of us still need reminding in 2021 that Jesus Christ is in control. The government might be out of control. Culture might be out of control. Other things might, but Jesus is not out of control. He's in control. He's 100% in control. And we need to step back sometimes and just take comfort in that, guys. Man, all that looks like it's nuts, but I know God knows what he's doing. I know God knows what he's doing. And so Matthew and John's accounts of Mary running into Jesus are a little bit different. Matthew writes that the women were returning and they encountered Jesus, and they, they, they grabbed his feet and started worshiping him. John's account, I really, really enjoy. It says that Jesus saw that the body was gone. She was crying, turned around, and she thought she was talking to the gardener of the area, and it was Jesus, right? 
And there's this, this beautiful moment between the two of them. Again, I think these two things can be reconciled, but, but it's just showing you kind of the, the, the differences between these two gospels. Now, here's where we need to be careful with things like this. We have a tendency, when I say we, I'm talking about Christians, not just humans. We have a tendency to make minor things major divisive issues. We have been notorious for that in Christianity, right? I mean, I'll give you an example. When I teach the book of Revelation, when I read the book of Revelation, I've taught it three times now, I think, I believe that Christians go through all seven years of the tribulation. That's called post-tribulation. Now, there's a lot of people that believe that we're raptured at the beginning of that and we don't go through any suffering, right? It's not a heaven or hell disagreement. In fact, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. I don't wanna go through seven years of suffering. I'd rather be zapped out, right? I don't see that in the scripture, but if you do that, that that's okay. It's not a heaven or hell thing. We can agree to disagree. But what we tend to do is we take minor things that are really not hills to die on and we make them things that divide us and split us up. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand what the majors are. Jesus Christ is the only pathway to heaven. Baptism, the Holy Spirit, community, community service, the, the following the principles and commands of Jesus. And the things that we can ad- agree to disagree on, we just need to civilly do that, right? But we have a tendency to blow things out of proportion and lose friends that we probably shouldn't lose over things that we shouldn't fight about. So Jesus shows up and he says, greetings. That was probably startling. This guy was just murdered a couple of days ago, resurrects from the grave. They just saw an angel that looked like lightning. And now here you have Jesus. Hi. And they're like, nah. But he doesn't stop there. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Now, when you read Jesus's tone, <laughs> so good. Jesus is obviously authoritative because he's God. But he's also warm and he's gentle and he's loving. And in that tone, we see the strength we see the security we get from him. We see the righteousness and, the, and the, the holiness and how we're called to be a part of that. And the reason why Jesus says to those ladies, you don't have to be afraid, is because those ladies were looking for him. Those ladies were wanting to live the way that they were supposed to live. They loved Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. Listen, When we are in love with God and we have a proper fear and understanding of the power of God, we don't have to live afraid of God because we're on his right side. It is when we're living in rebellion to the creator of the universe that, yes, you should be afraid. You should be afraid. But these women had nothing to be afraid of because they loved Jesus. They were living in the way that they should have been living. So this part that I just read to you, Matthew 28, 1 through 10, it serves as proof, obviously, to these two ladies it serves as proof eventually to the, to the 11 remaining disciples, and it still is proof for us today that Christ is alive because we believe in this word. And that implies that all of us are going to be held accountable by the risen Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. All of us in this room, everyone in the world, when we pass from this life to the next, we're gonna meet one of two Jesuses. We're gonna either meet Jesus, our gracious Lord and Savior, or, gonna, or, or we're gonna meet Jesus, the judge. And we don't want to meet Jesus the judge. You want to meet Jesus, your gracious Savior. So how we view in our relationship with Jesus now on this earth determines the Jesus that we're going to meet on the other side of eternity. Okay? All right, next part. So as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, They gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, 
His disciples came during the night and stole him while you were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with him and we'll keep you out of trouble. They took the money, they did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. So what happened was this, right? They knew, the Jews and the Romans knew that they had to keep Jesus in the grave for at least four days because Jesus said he was gonna raise on the third day. So if we can just keep him in there for four days, right, it'll be okay. It'll make all of his prophecies null and void. Everyone will know that he was a fake. We'll be, out, we'll, we'll be in the clear. The problem came when Jesus wasn't there on the third day. Now, here's the thing. If you were not with me last week, we talked about Roman soldiers. If you don't know anything about Roman history, I'm fascinated by Roman history. Roman soldiers were the cream of the crop. There was no more well-trained soldier on planet Earth than Roman soldiers, okay? Now, not only were these the cream of the crop soldiers on planet Earth, the penalty for, for negligence by a Roman soldier was death. We've actually seen several accounts of this in the Bible. But if something happened on your, 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 while you were on the clock as a Roman soldier, you would have to be executed. They would take your life. So all the Jewish people knew this. They knew how hard it was to be a Roman soldier, and they knew what the penalty of making a mistake as a Roman soldier was. So to hear this lie that Roman soldiers fell asleep on the job, and while they fell asleep on the job, get this, this is why the lie is so audacious. As they were sleeping, people showed up, broke the seal to a rock that weighed a couple of tons, moved said rock, right? And then these guys slept the whole time? That's some heavy sleeping. That's some, some serious sleep apnea or something right there. I don't know what was happening. There's no way. There's no way you would have slept through that much ruckus. So it was just a crazy lie. The other thing is, is because these Roman soldiers knew that they would be executed for dropping the ball, they didn't drop the ball. It really wasn't their fault. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the reason they didn't go to the Roman authorities, their superiors, and they went to the Jewish authorities is one, the Roman soldiers, the Roman superiors would have never believed that an angel showed up. They didn't believe in that kind of stuff. Nor um, um, would their lives have been spared. So they would have thought they were lying and they would have been executed. So they go to the Jewish authorities. And the Jewish authorities, oddly enough, um, I think they believed what they had to say. So here's what's interesting, and I'm jump ahead of myself. Notice the Jewish authorities never questioned the story of the Romans. Isn't that interesting? So the Roman soldiers were offered a large sum of money and said, just tell people that you fell asleep. And listen, if it gets to your boss, we'll take care of it. We'll pay him off. We'll do some politicking. We'll work it out. You'll be okay. Now, the reason I think it's interesting that they never deny that an angel came and set Jesus free is this. If it were true, if all the things that Jesus said were true, if people found out that Jesus was everything he said he was, it would completely disrupt their way of life. Here's what they essentially did. And, and this sounds crazy until you think about our lives. Even in the face of knowing the truth, they didn't want to give up their livelihoods and their comforts. So they willingly turned away from truth, lived a lie because it was more comfortable. That sounds crazy, but I've done it, right? I, I would imagine if you're honest, maybe some of you have done that. But this is essentially what I think they did. And so still to this day, Matthew writes, the story of the Roman soldiers falling asleep 
They still, to this day, he says, tried to use that to discredit Christ's identity. Now, to be fair, we've never found Christ's body. We know, we believe it because it's been resurrected. But here's the thing. Whenever I hear Christians say, well, I can scientifically prove to you that there is a God, you can't. There's no way to scientifically prove it. That's why we call it faith. There has to be an experience with God. There has to be a desire to understand that there is something bigger than us. There has to be a desire and a pursuit of the knowledge and truth that is the word of God. We can't prove with some experiment or some archaeological dig that God exists. In the same note, there is no one that can prove to me that God does not exist. There's no empirical evidence to say that there is no God either. So what we have to lean on is faith. We have to lean on the fact that this book works. When it applied to our lives, it works, and we have to have an experience with God's power, right? It's faith. That's what we eventually have to kind of lean on to. So the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I am with you always till the end of the age or the end of time. So here's a fun fact, and Matthew doesn't mention this. A fun fact is Jesus was resurrected and hung out with his disciples for 40 days before he went into heaven. I'm not trying to sound goofy or whatever, but imagine like you're sitting there like eating dinner and you're sitting across the table from a guy who is viciously murdered, resurrected, and he is God incarnate, right? You're sitting there eating, you're eating your fish. That's the guy that created me right there, right? That's pretty interesting when you think about it. If you go on into the other gospels, I mean, I'm gonna talk about it here in a second. I mean, there's a story where Peter and Jesus are on the beach just cooking up fish, just talking. It's crazy, right? The resurrected Savior. So after the disciples went to a mountain in Galilee that Jesus told them to go to, they saw Jesus and they worshiped him there. And Matthew just writes, some doubted. If you keep on reading, if you get into John chapter 20, the one that doubted was a guy named Thomas, who was one of the disciples. We give Thomas a hard time, but again, we've all been Thomas at one point or another. Thomas is the one that says, well, until I see the side that was pierced and the hands that had the nails through it, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus says, go for it, right? This wonderful story. We see that in John chapter 20. In Luke chapter 24, we get one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I actually have a painting in my office of this story, the road to Emmaus, which is another great story, that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, not everyone had heard that he had resurrected yet, and a couple of disciples, not, not the original disciples, but other disciples, were walking down a road to a city called Emmaus, road to Emmaus, and they're walking down the road, and they're, they're sad, and this third guy walks up and says, hey, what are you guys so upset about? And they basically say, are you dumb? Have you been living under a rock? Jesus was just crucified. We followed him. Did you not hear about it? And this third party goes, tell me about it, right? And then you find out later down the road that it was Jesus. Jesus just showed up, right? And I love how Jesus was just kind of like, yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me about what's making you so sad. And then he vanishes in another one of those gotcha moments, shows up and eats dinner with some other disciples, vanishes there too, right? Jesus just <laughs> having fun. So you read all these fantastic stories. There's so much depth and character, and, and you really start to see this relationship that God has with his creation. It's really fantastic. Matthew doesn't even mention the ascension of Jesus. That's actually in the, in the book of Luke, 
The ascension of Jesus back into heaven is in Luke. Uh, Matthew does not mention the story of Peter's restoration. Another wonderful story. I think John mentions that. Yeah, John 21 mentions that. A wonderful story to where if you haven't been here, Peter denies Jesus that he even knew him three times before he was crucified. And look at how wonderful Jesus is. Literally, they're sitting on the beach, they're hanging out, and Jesus goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes. And then a third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he goes, yeah, why do you, why do you keep asking me? And then it hits him. I denied him three times, and then Jesus gives me the opportunity to be restored three times. This beautiful story, right? But you have to go to the other gospels to read that stuff. The reason why Matthew didn't go into all that is Matthew wanted to get to verse 19 and 20 of chapter, uh, of chapter 28. He wanted to get to the crescendo, right? Some of the most important words recorded. This is one of those verses. You don't have to have it memorized word by word. I think every Christian should have a working knowledge of, of what's called the Great Commission. And we're going to break it down line by line, okay? We should all be able to at least paraphrase what the Great Commission is. So let's break it down. Before we get into the actual Great Commission, Jesus says this. Before he tells them what to do, he says, all authority belongs to me. All power belongs to me. This is important. Before Jesus tells us to go out and do what he wants us to do, he reminds us of where our power comes from. Because without Jesus' authority and power, the mission of Jesus' followers is impossible. Why? Because the Bible says there is nothing good in us apart from God. There is no success within us, real success, without God's help. Humanity alone is destined to fail. There is no power in humanity without God. Have we not seen it in the last 12 months? Have we not seen everything that we thought was secure, right? Fall apart and crumble. And if we haven't seen it yet, the Bible assures us we will see it as time goes on. And it should be a reminder to us that have heard the truth that there is no power except the power of Jesus Christ. There is no true success without God's help. So before Jesus sends us out, he says, remember, all power lies with me and I'm with you. So you're gonna have the power, you're gonna have the ability to go do what I tell you to do. So all authority lies with me, now go. This is important. The command to go, to move, is vitally important. The life of a Christian should have purpose, it should have meaning, it should have movement, it should, be, it should have intentionality. Christians are not called to coast. We are not called to get saved and sit around in our savedness, right? We're not supposed to go to country clubs that we call churches and just associate with people just like us. We are called to go out into the world and be light to it. We are called to move, right? We're called to be active in pursuing holiness, which means living the way God wants us to live. That's all that means. And we are also called to fight evil. It is not okay for Christians to sit around as we see evil happening and go, man, that's bad. We should pray for that. Yes, pray for it. Now go engage it. That's why nonprofits like In Slavery Tennessee are fantastic, right? Partner with churches. We can pray for them. But man, we also need to get behind them. Give money to them, volunteer with them, support them, because there's ugliness out there, and we are called to bring the light into the ugliness, into the darkness. We're also called to go to the unbelieving world around us 
and show them the love and power of Jesus Christ. We are to act like Jesus, and when the appropriate times comes up, I suggest that you tell people what Jesus has done in your life that shows people the power of God. We can tell people about the miracles of Jesus, but that's just something out of an old book. But when I tell people, at the, it, it, when people meet me at Just Love or Brasshorn or Starbucks or whatever, and we get to talking and they're just like, tell me about you. And I'm like, well, I'm a recovering cocaine addict that tried to kill himself three times. What? Yeah, by the power of God, I'm not what I used to be, right? And then it becomes real. It starts to connect at that point, doesn't it? Now, listen, you don't have to be a former coke addict that was suicidal to have a story. I think an even better story nowadays is to have a 20-year-old who goes, still have my sexual purity, been in love with Jesus my whole entire life. I love that story. I wish I heard more of those stories. But we need to share the power of God with people through our personal testimonies, okay? We need to go, though. We are not called to sit in comfort. It's funny to me, all these churches that they don't associate with people different from them and they don't go out into the world and they make sure that their kids never look at anyone that's strange or weird, right? And Jesus said, I'm gonna send you out like sheep among wolves. That's uncomfortable. I haven't seen any sheep that hang out with wolves and are like, man, this is super cool, right? This is great. They're all wanting to eat me right now, right? No, Jesus said we're supposed to be sent out and it's hostile out there. Now listen, I didn't say this at the other services, but I have two little girls, beautiful girls, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls, smart girls, wonderful girls. They're both, oh man, I, I mean, I don't mean this as a jab at anyone. They're in public schools. They're in the world. They're out there, right? And here's the thing. I, I cannot keep them from that for forever. What I have to do is I have to instill the teachings of this book in them at a young age. I have to pray over them every single night because there's nothing I can do to keep the wolves away from them forever. I have to train them, though, to lean on the shepherd and then send them out in that in the hopes that my two little girls... Let me tell you a cool story real quick. Let me brag on my eight-year-old. She's eight. Eight, mischievous, just, just a great girl. I love her to death. She went out of her way several years ago. There's a family that, that comes to church here now. And there's, a, there's a, a, a young man at the school she used to go to. She doesn't go there anymore. And um, very, very shy. Very, very shy. And my daughter just somehow took an interest in this boy. And even though he would barely even talk, like they were always the two that were playing out on the playground and she just went out of her way to always include him and things like that. That doesn't sound like much. I was proud of my daughter, but we baptized that kid a couple of weeks ago. And his whole entire family now comes to church and the mom sent my wife a text and said, if it wasn't for your eight-year-old daughter reaching out to my son a couple of years ago, we don't know where we would be. Now, listen, I'm not trying to brag just on my daughter, but what I'm saying is, we have to prepare them. If we would have said, oh, no, 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 you're only hanging out with people that think and act and look just like us, she would have never reached that boy. You wouldn't have a whole family in the church. We don't need to be afraid of that world. We just need to insulate our family so they can go out in it and bring light into it. You don't have to be afraid of what's out there. The one that is in you is greater than anything that's out there. Okay? You don't have to be afraid of out there. We got to go. And what do we do when we go? We make disciples. The heart of Jesus' mission was to save souls. It's the whole purpose, man. Jesus wants to hang out with us forever. And so we are called to go out and we're called to share the gospel and to do everything we can to bridge the gap between people that don't know Jesus and Jesus. We need to bridge that gap. We need to connect those two things. Now listen, I'm not telling you to run into a coffee shop with like a King James Version Bible and just beat someone stupid, right? Thou doest this, right? Um, that's, um, that's not what I'm telling you to do. 
What I am asking you to do is go into a coffee shop and say, hey, my name's Corey, right? Don't say Corey, whatever your name is. <laughs> hey, my name is this. <laughs> do you know where discipleship started with Peter? It took Peter years to fully understand who Jesus was. Do you know where discipleship with Peter started? Jesus said, hey, Peter, my name's Jesus. You want to walk with me? That's how it all started. Discipleship starts at hello. But here's the thing. We need to intentionally lead the people we build relationships to Jesus. I know there's a huge fear of people. They don't, they don't want to offend people. Let's just be honest. A lot of the reasons why we're so afraid to share our story is not because we're afraid of hurting their feelings. We're afraid of people not liking us. Anyways, we need to share that story with people. And God will create the, the, the opportunity. The door will open. But listen, if we say we love people, and as Christians, we know the only thing that will keep people from eternal damnation is the gospel. If we say we love people, but we never share the only key that gets them out of hell, I'd say we don't love people as much as we say we love them. That's just me, okay? You have to share that information with people. So we go out, we make disciples, and we baptize them. Baptism is kind of that definitive point of commitment. It's the most visible way to show that people are following Jesus. Um, it's, 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 it's our way of kind of publicly saying, this is what I've put my life to do. And baptism can never lose its importance. Paul wrote in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2 that this is where the dead come back to life. This is where the old self is crucified and we walk into a new way of life. Baptism is a pivotal part of the discipleship and relationship with God process. And then here's the part where we really drop the ball. We can build big churches. We can get a lot of people baptized. And those, those are good things. The problem is, is we have to teach people to observe the things that Jesus has taught us. Here's where the church fails the most often. We're not only to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're not only to get baptized. We are to follow what this book says. This is the most frustrating thing about my job. Because I don't feel like I'm... I'm I'm gray about these things. I don't feel like the Bible is gray about these things. There are so many times I've gotten up here. I'm going to do it right now. And excuse me, if your children are in here, I'm going to, I'll do it in a way that's, that's as classy as I can do it. But when I stand up here and say, listen, it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you think or feel. If you are having sex and you are not married to the person you're having sex with, that's a sin. And the Bible says many, many times that you should not do that. You're not allowed to do that. And if you do that, you're breaking a command of the Bible. I can say that. That's about as black and white as it gets right there. And I can follow that up with, Jesus says in the book of John, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So I can say that. And the most frustrating part about my job is not that people make mistakes, and I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. My problem is when people who claim to follow Jesus knowingly live in a life of sin. And so I don't care how many pictures of bagels in your Bible that you post on Instagram. If you're not doing what Jesus tells you to do, you're not a follower of Jesus. That's not my words, that's his. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. See, here's the thing. It is only by having a relationship with God and applying the principles of God in our life that we start to see our life change. That's why so many people who claim to be Christians cannot get out of the rut that they are in because quite frankly, they have not submitted their entire lives to Jesus's teachings and they cannot get out of those ruts. But a true Christian, they're not perfect. They make mistakes, but when they make mistakes, they repent and they try to step away from that lifestyle of evil. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. We observe the teachings. Here's the beautiful part. 
So Jesus starts off with saying, I have all the power. And then he ends with saying, I'm with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. Making disciples, baptizing people, and teaching people to observe the, the teachings of the Bible is not easy. Listen, being a Christian is not easy. If you go to a church and they tell you that being a Christian is easy, make sure your wallet is still in your back pocket, right? They're probably looking something for, for, from you. It is not easy to be a Christian. Again, you cannot read the New Testament. You cannot read the book of Acts. You cannot read the epistles of Paul and go, man, being a Christian is super easy as Paul wrote that letter from his prison cell. I mean, it just doesn't work. But with God's help, with God's Holy Spirit, we can live the commands of Jesus and we can fulfill the mission of Christ. The key, though, is that we have to want to. We have to have a desire to do that. We're going to make mistakes, but if we want to live the way Jesus wants us to live, God, when we make mistakes, God will forgive us. He dusts us off. He says, let's get back. Let's get back on track, right? I'm not going to think about that anymore. You don't think about that anymore. Let's move forward, right? And so that's what he does with us. He graciously helps us. Here's the thing, though. If you've been with me for the last year, everything that we have read in the book of Matthew builds up to these last couple of verses. It builds up to how we are equipped to go out into our world and be the light that Jesus told us to be in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, to be the salt that he told us to be, to be the peacemakers he told us to be, to go out and be holy like he is holy, the Bible says. This is the whole book of Matthew leads up to this crescendo. And here's the thing. The Great Commission, because he says, all power and authority is with me and I'm with you. It is understanding the identity of Jesus. That was Matthew's whole point, was to have us understand who Jesus is. That is the key. It's not only the foundation of, of, of living this life the way we should, it's our key to the afterlife is knowing who Jesus is. Now, here's the interesting thing. We live in a society, in a culture right now that is trying to find its value and its identity in everything. We talk about gender identification and sexual preference and color of skin and nationality. And we talk about socioeconomics and we talk about all these things. And we try to find our identity and our place in those things. And the reason why depression keeps going up and suicide keeps going up and divorce keeps going up and hopelessness keeps going up and fatherless families keep going up and on and on and on is because we keep trying to find our image in something that we were not made in the image of. The only thing that you and I were made in the image of is God. What does that mean? That means you will search for contentment everywhere, but if you don't search for it in what you're made to look like, you will never find it. It is only by knowing who he is that we can start to learn who we are. Isn't that interesting? We keep finding this newfound freedom to do whatever we want to do in this me-ism that we live in in the United States and we continue to blow our brains out. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. You can only know who you are when you start to understand who your creator is, okay? So as a follower of Christ, we must know that his commands are unbending. What does that mean? That means it doesn't matter what celebrities say. It doesn't matter what your government says. It doesn't matter what, I don't know, culturally relevant churches say. It doesn't matter. Jesus' commands have not changed. That means if it was wrong when Jesus said it, it's still wrong in 2021. If it was wrong when Paul wrote it, it's still wrong in 2021. 
Well, it was written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't change because you don't think it's cool anymore. So his teachings are unbending, but here's the good news. His grace is also unending. God's grace has not changed either. And Paul writes that he gives us grace upon grace, that when we make a mistake, if we're genuine, he helps us. So we must understand that Jesus holds power, authority, that he gives us the authority in his name to go out and do good things in the world around us, that we can lead, that we can act change. What does that mean on a practical level? That means if you're in this room and you're married, if both of you want to give your lives to Jesus, you can have an awesome marriage. He has the power to transform bad marriages. If you're in here and you've been a negligent mother, it, with the power of the Holy Spirit and dedication to Jesus Christ, God has the power to transform you into a super mom. If you struggle with your tongue, I love it when Southern Christians are like, well, I've always just said these words. I'm always going to say these words. You know what the Bible says, right? That out of abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. That only the Holy Spirit can tame the tongue. Well, I was just born this way, Corey. That's why Jesus said, be born again. Because you were born messed up. And Jesus wants to transform you into something in his image. So there's some things we shouldn't say. There are some feelings that we shouldn't have. There are some thoughts that run through our mind that need to be taken captive, the Bible says. And God, through his Holy Spirit, has the power to do that to us. And we have the power to be the moms, dads, husbands, wives, children, employees, employers, students, whatever the case may be. We have the power to do that, not because we're good, but because he's good and he's with us. We can do that. So we must believe that Jesus is the only hope for a broken world that's headed for destruction. It's not a transition of political power. It's not an economic wave at the stock market. It's not you getting that new house or you having sex with that girl. The only hope you have is in Jesus Christ. Again, if 2020 has taught us anything, so that our hope has to be in something greater than anything in this world. But here's the thing. The only way that we can show that hope to the world around us that is struggling out there is we must live by the teachings. The teachings of Jesus must be our character. What does that mean? That means if the teachings of Jesus are our character, when someone bad, says bad things, we don't get online and slander them back. It's not what we do. That's not Jesus's character. If someone hits me, I, I strike back harder. Jesus said, turn that cheek. It's not Jesus' character. When someone says, well, no one's going to take anything from me. If they try to take anything from me, I'm going to hurt them. Jesus said, if they take your shirt, give them your shoes. It's Jesus' character. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. So we need to be the ones displaying the character of Christ. And we can never expect to bring people to Christ if we don't display the character of Christ. So Jesus tells us to carry out the mission, to live righteously, to teach others to live righteously. And if we will do that, there will be a great reward. So let's take a quick inventory, and I'm going to, lead you with, I'm going to leave you with one thought. First question is this, do you know the real Jesus? I'm not talking about the blue-eyed British accent Jesus. I'm not talking about the American Jesus. Do you know the biblical Jesus? Do you and I know the biblical Jesus? Whenever I hear people say, well, I don't think Jesus would do that. By what basis do you have that thought? Is it based on what you would do or is it based on what he actually did here? We have to know the biblical Jesus. Are we living by the principles and the commands of the Bible? The only way to do that is we first have to read the Bible, the principles and commands of the Bible. Are we living by those things? 
Are we living by those things? Next thing, do we trust in the transformative power of Jesus and the word? It goes back to the whole, well, I was just born that way. Well, then be born again. That's what the Bible says, right? I've just always had this temper. Well, you need to let Jesus deliver you of that, right? Do we believe in the transformative power of, of Jesus? I did a wedding for a young man on staff and um, got married to a young woman on my staff. I swore that I'd never let that happen, but it's happened twice in the last year. <laughs> Anyways, great couple. Five years ago, this young man was an atheist. Started the atheist club in his high school before he graduated, right? Works on staff here. And just to see that, that God has the power to transform the mind, to renew the mind, to change the trajectory of people. If we will just be open, do we still believe in that power? Do we still believe in that? And are we disciples of Christ that are making more disciples of Christ? Are we followers of Jesus that look at the people around us who need to be following him as well and say, hey, come with me. Let's walk together in this. Let me leave you with a thought. Something to meditate on, think about. So in Jesus' time, what would happen is when a young man got to be about 13 years old or so, if they were the cream of the crop, the smartest of the smart, the best of the best, they would get paired up with a rabbi. And they would walk with this rabbi for over a decade. Now, when you walked with your rabbi, you didn't walk in front of your rabbi because your rabbi led. You didn't walk beside your rabbi because you were not equal to your rabbi. You walked behind your rabbi everywhere you went. Of course, in Jesus' time, right, they wore long clothes, usually light-colored, and they would wear sandals, and they walked around. There's a lot of dirt and dust. And so there was this phrase, you knew a good apprentice by how much dust was on the front of their clothes. What that meant was is they were covered in the dust of their rabbi, their teacher, which means they walked really closely by their teacher. So everywhere they would go, even if their teacher wasn't around or visible, they would walk into a place and you would see a bunch of dust on the front of their clothes, on their feet, on their legs, and you'd say, wow, it's a good apprentice. He's got the dust of his rabbi all over him. So here's my question for, for us today and for me as well. When I walk into the grocery store, do people see the dust of my teacher on me? When I go to school, do people see the dust of my rabbi all over me? When I go to work, when things are unfair, when I don't agree with what's going on in the world around me, do people see the dust of my rabbi all over me? The question is truly this. I'm not trying to walk in front of my teacher. I don't think I'm as good as my teacher. I'm behind my teacher, but I'm walking so closely that all the remnants of where he walks and the way he walks is on me. So where we go places, how we raise our children, how we treat our spouse, how the employees around us where we work, the places where we exercise, the place where we get coffee, do people see the dust of the one that we should be following? Or have we gotten so distracted that our rabbi is too far in front of us? Have we gotten so intoxicated by the things around us that we've gotten off the track and he's moving this way and I'm walking that way? Or have we dedicated our lives to watch how his feet moves? And we start to, <laughs> we start to learn how the teacher steps and we start to walk in step with his steps. We start to learn the proximity that we can be in, right? And how close we can get to him. 
We start to hear how our rabbi talks and we start to talk like him. We start to see how our rabbi thinks and we start to think like him. We start to see how our rabbi responds to adversity and corruption and evil and hatred, and we start to respond to those things like them. But the only way we can do that is we have to be real close to our teacher. Something to meditate on. When people see me out in town, do they see the dust of my teacher on me? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're in this room and um, maybe you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're curious, maybe you got questions, maybe you got suckered in here by a girl today and you're like, well, might as well ask some questions. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here. He'd love to talk with you. Any questions you may have, you're not gonna offend him, you're not gonna offend us. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life, anything in your life you need prayer for. Hey, and then the last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. Now, I'm gonna give you a different slant to that communion today. We talked last week, that communion represents the blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross and his body that was broken for us. And of course it does. We know that we have to repent, ask God to forgive us before we take that communion, okay? Let me have you think of it a different way though today. That communion doesn't only represent Jesus that died. It represents Jesus that resurrected. It reminds us that because he raised from the grave, we have the power of the Holy Spirit with us. When he said he's with us till the end of the age, he didn't mean in physical form, he meant in his spirit. Right now, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus and live for Jesus, Ephesians 1.13 says you've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have that. You have access to that. So when you take that communion today, know not only is there a God that loves you, there's a God that can transform you that can help you go out into this dark world and be the light that you need to be so your friends can get saved, your family can be changed. Things can start to look different in the lives around you. You can do that. You've been called to do that. Not only does God have all power, he is with you. He's with you. Remember that. You have nothing to be afraid of in that world out there. Greater is he that lives in you than anything in that world. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room. God, you've been so good to us. Father, I pray that you, you give us opportunities to talk to people, create opportunities for us to build friendships and relationships with the world around us. Lord, don't, be a, don't let us be intimidated by the culture around us, society around us, people that are different from us, God. All of them have been made in your image. You love them all, God, and it is our mission to go out and to introduce them to you. Lord, we love you. God, be with us until we meet again next week. Keep everyone safe, Lord. Keep their families safe. And uh, Father, Lord, let us always lean more and more on you. And God, Lord, let us follow our rabbi so closely that we start to walk more like you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.